if you're going to walk into any room and do any kind of presentation, you just want to assume that people are really happy that you're there. You bring more of yourself. You're less focused on your content and more interested in who's in the room and what they might need. You go from rigid to fluid. You're listening to Parallel Careers, where writers who also teach share the big ideas and practical tips that they take into the classroom. My name is Farzana Doctor. I'm a novelist and a poet, and I do that in the morning and in the afternoons. I'm a part-time psychotherapist. I'm also an activist. I have been for about 30 years. I've been a founding member of a couple of anti-FGM female genital mutilation groups. Recently, I've done a couple of webinars for the Writers' Union of Canada. I also am a mentor uh, through Diaspora Dialogues. I have been bringing together my psychotherapy and my writing work into workshops. I have a lot of ideas and I have a lot of strategies for helping writers to get over some of the emotional and kind of difficult mental things that come up in writing. When I was a social worker working at a large organization, one of my jobs was to do teaching around psychotherapy work. And I started to learn some adult education techniques. And that was how I learned how to structure a workshop so that people wouldn't be, you know, really bored really quickly. And so I try to structure in lots of experiential things. I know that as a participant, it's really the experiential exercises and the networking with the other people and hearing what they have to say and realizing I'm not alone. All of that is really what I take out of workshops, not what the lecturer at the front of the room is doing. And so I think really the the teacher's job is to facilitate people getting moving, doing their own work, and then sharing with the group. I think um, the other piece around the connections between psychotherapy and writing is I've also learned to just wait and to be patient and to allow characters to reveal themselves over time. All Inclusive was a very difficult novel for me to write. I had written a completely different version of it before and uh, my agent who I had at the time and a writing group I worked with at the time um, really panned it. If, if I could sum up all of their feedback, it would just be a, a thumbs down. <laughs> and they were right. And one day I was teaching an emerging writers workshop at the High Park Library in Toronto. And as I was riding the hills home, I heard this very distinct voice in my head that said, I am your missing character and this is what happened to me. And I stopped, you know, my bike to be like, what? No, no, thank you. <laughs> also weird. I had written this novel about this woman who works at an all-inclusive resort and she's got all of this, you know, stuff happening around her swinger lifestyle. I had no better idea, so I removed a lot of her backstory and in the gaps that were left behind, Aziz was writing himself. This was one of those weird magic moments where somebody was helping me and he was sending me scenes. And in the gaps that were left behind, he's kind of seamlessly moved in and it shouldn't have made any sense. So the voice in my head told me that he was involved in the Air India bombing. 
And part of my no was how was I going to incorporate that into the story I'd already written? And how was I going to write about the Air India bombing in a way that was going to be really respectful? I did a lot of research. That was one of the ways to remain respectful. Most South Asian people I know have had uh, some kind of someone that they lost in the Air India bombing, but I didn't. And so I worried about how would the family members of the people who died feel about me as someone who didn't lose a loved one? How would they feel about me writing that and bringing it into a novel? Happily, people responded really well and just said, this is another contribution to helping people not forget. The other piece is that you can't overstep. So I didn't want to become a spokesperson about the Air India bombing. I had a couple of requests and I declined them and instead pointed them in the direction towards other writers who had experienced those personal losses. That's also a way, like you don't take opportunities and especially paid opportunities away from people who really should be the ones receiving that. So my fourth novel, Seven, was released in September 2020. And it's a book about a 40-year-old woman who goes to India thinking that she's going to be doing a little bit of historical research on an ancestor and homeschooling her kid. It's inspired by my own research into my own great-great-grandfather. And it's also inspired by my activism. April 2016, Mumbai. I take a cautious sip. Tasneem Masi pours half her cup into her saucer and sucks the tea down in one long, loud slurp. She pulls up her orna, which slid from her oiled hair to her shoulders, tucking the gauzy fabric around an ear to keep it in place. It's going to happen today, this afternoon. Masi's life is going to change irrevocably. Will she think that her favorite niece has turned traitor? I cannot stop this moving train. What good will it do to announce the crash? After all, Masi can't get off at the next stop. Instead, I sit on the edge of my beloved aunt's couch, scalding tea, burning my tongue. At the end of 2015, I was scrolling through Facebook and I saw an article by a woman named Masuma Rinaldi, who is the founder of We Speak Out, which is an organization that works against cutna or female genital cutting in my community. And she was the first person that I know of who publicly in a major newspaper, wrote about Kutna. This is an issue that is so taboo and so silenced in our community. And so I was really taken by what she wrote. And I contacted her over Facebook and just thanked her. And she wrote back and she invited me to join a WhatsApp group that soon became, eventually, We Speak Out. And so I was one of the founding members. And I was really involved in the early activism um, around that. But it was stirring something deep inside me. I had some denial and some suppressed memories that over time no longer were suppressed about my own experiences of Kutna. And so I was in the midst of all of this activism. And at the same time, fully formed scenes were coming out of me. I would spend 15 minutes in the morning with my notebook and my cup of coffee. 
I was still promoting all inclusive. So I didn't have a lot of time for new writing, but these fully formed scenes were just, you know, coming out into my notebook. So I created three different characters who have three very different experiences of the issues. For example, there's one character who thinks cutting is a good thing. Then there's um, another character who knows nothing about it. And then there's another character who is a really strong activist. And that's how you bring nuances through characters and experiences. Beyond wanting to create a beautiful novel, I, w I wanted to contribute to the conversation around Katna. And for me, fiction is a great way to do that. Yes, we can be on Twitter and yes, we can be public speaking about these kinds of things. But I, so I somehow think we get into people's hearts better through fiction. Self-care is really important for writers in general, but I think specifically if you're writing about your own trauma or other people's trauma, I think it's really important. I think we have to just be really tuned into what's going on in our bodies. So for example, with Seven, there were moments where I wasn't sleeping very well or moments where I would get weird pains in my body. And those were signs that maybe I need to back off and work on other scenes. Um, or back off and just take a walk with my dog, just back off in general. The other piece of self-care that I'm doing a lot of work on right now is when you're releasing a novel, often you'll be asked to talk about the hard issues in the novel. And you'll also be able to, you're, you're also asked to speak about the personal connections, right? What, what is the personal and what is, what is the fiction? So I've had to do a lot of thinking about that and uh, where are my boundaries around talking about me and with talking about the book? I, I have no boundaries with talking about my characters and the book, but I do have lots of boundaries about talking about my own personal experience. So I've had to do a lot of thinking about that. I've spoken with journalist friends where I've had them practice with me, where they asked all kinds of insensitive questions. And I've needed to say, thank you so much for that question. And, you know, I have a boundary around talking about that, or I prefer to talk about this, or, you know, just getting good at holding my boundaries. So that's a piece of self-care. I also know that when it comes to writing about issues that have impact for a lot of people, sometimes you'll get a lot of readers reaching out to you uh, with their own stories, uh, perhaps even asking for support. And being a little bit prepared in advance for that and thinking through your own boundaries for that is really important. I'm a big fan of twin narratives, both as a reader and as a writer. But I, I especially was intentional with this novel because one of the messages of the book is how we inherit everything from our ancestors. One of the ways I could show that was to have the main protagonist kind of moving along in her story and then to have these moments of time and they're very brief where the great great grandfather character is moving through his life and there are big swaths of time that are missing in his life but he's there's just these sort of moments where he arrives and sometimes the connection between him and the main character are very directly related and sometimes they're not and they're it's more up to the reader's imagination to wonder why have I brought in this particular piece of his story when she's doing this other thing some of it is for foreshadowing some of it is to hint at what's going on for her emotionally 
but mostly it's to show that our ancestors are always with us and the legacies that they leave us are always with us. January 1866, South Bombay. 11-year-old Abdulali huddled under the yellow glow of a street lamp, his index finger pacing his labored reading. The lion lives in the jungle, he whispered. His roar is loud. An elderly fruit seller trudged by with an empty wooden cart pulled by a weary bullock. Just in time, Abdulali wrapped his legs around the post to avoid a heavy hoof landing on his toe. A fly, one of the bullock's many-winged passengers, hopped onto his hand and then onto the Hindi primary reader he had borrowed from Sunil, the nine-year-old boy of the family for whom he worked. He told his mother it was a gift. Did she believe the lie? So there's a form of therapy called uh, internal family systems therapy. Um, and it basically uh, says that we have all of these various protector parts within us that we have developed over time. And some of them are really helpful and some of them are trying to be helpful and then maybe overdo it and become unproductive. And so the inner critic is one of those internal protector parts that sometimes go overboard. So this exercise is called Befriend Your Inner Critic. So the first thing you do is you just tune in. Just write down what you hear or just listen to what you hear. My inner critic often says things like, this writing isn't going anywhere, this is not original, that kind of stuff. And then the next step is you try a compassionate, validating statement. So I might say, yeah, putting out this writing into the world is really scary. I am going to risk some, getting some criticism. Not everyone is going to like this writing. Some people are really going to be angry about this maybe. So yeah, this is scary. And then next, you thank it for its service. I know you're just trying to protect me from humiliation, rejection, and disappointment. Thanks so much for doing that. You've been working so hard on my behalf for so many years. And then the next step is you remind the inner critic that you can actually handle the things that is trying to protect you against. Often our inner critic parts are developed in childhood. And so it's helpful to remind the inner critic that you've grown up. So I would say, I'm a grown up and I have lots of experience with rejection now and I'm okay with it. Or I'm a grown up and I have people I can talk to who are going to be really nice to me when I experience failure. And then you check in and you see if your inner critic has relaxed a little bit so you can get on with your writing. When I'm thinking about feedback, I really try to remember what it was like to be an emerging author. Writing is incredibly vulnerable and it's, I think it's more vulnerable when we're emerging writers. Facilitators or teachers need to set the stage in advance of starting. So in that first class or at the beginning of a workshop, they need to create the guidelines. They need to make sure the students really understand the guidelines for 
what kind of feedback do we want to be giving? How do we want to be gentle and kind to one another? How do we want to be supportive? So one question that I've sometimes asked people when there's feedback uh, that's being given is, first of all, do you want feedback or did you just want people to listen? And then what kind of feedback are you interested in? So that person can at least ask. They might not get what they're looking for, but they can ask for what they want. And then the rest of the people in the room know what's expected. And then it's up to the facilitator if people don't follow those guidelines to enforce them, to say, I think we're getting away from our guidelines, or I think we're getting away from what so-and-so has asked for in terms of feedback. Maybe we could, we could draw it back in. The other piece is that I don't think that it's possible to be 100% safe. We all make mistakes. We all get triggered. And we sometimes don't even know why we're getting triggered. So maybe we don't look for safety, but we look for respect and good working relationships instead. You've been listening to Parallel Careers, which is produced by myself, Claire Tayson in partnership with the New Quarterly Literary Magazine. Erin McIndoe-Sproul is our technical producer and story editor. Financial and in-kind support was provided by the Region of Waterloo Arts Fund, St. Jerome's University, and the Government of Canada. The music you heard on this episode was composed by Amadeo Ventura. You can hear more of his music at amadeoventura.weebly.com. Visit tnq.ca slash parallel for more information on Farzana's work, including her most recent novel, Seven. There you can also listen to outtakes from this episode and check out more teaching and writing tips. Thanks for listening.